This episode of Between Two COOs is brought to you by Fellow, the only all-in-one meeting management platform helping you and your team have fewer, more effective meetings. Thousands of companies like Shopify, HubSpot, and MyFitnessPal use Fellow to solve their meeting problem. By offering integrated action items, collaborative meeting notes, and AI recordings and transcription, Fellow helps teams and organizations get more done with less. Organizations leveraging Fellow are seeing an average savings of seven hours per week per manager. Between two COOs listeners get five free AI meeting recordings. Go to fellow.co to start your free trial and start having better meetings today. Hello and welcome to Between Two COOs, where phenomenal chief operating officers come to share their knowledge, advice, and at the very end, a crazy story. I'm your host, Michael Koenig, and our guest today is Greg Strickland, COO of Product Board, which is the leading product management system, helping product teams from companies like Microsoft, Zendesk, and Avast get the right products to market faster. I'm a former customer, and I can attest to that, and it's no surprise that they're nearing $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Prior to Product Board, Greg was the COO at Periscope Data, and before that, the International General Manager and VP of Global Ops at Box. Greg, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Excited for this. Fantastic. In a previous podcast that you gave, you mentioned that your and I'm just diving right in here. <laughs> Let's do it. I love it. <laughs> you mentioned that your success has come from saying yes to new opportunities, uh, especially those ones where you feel out of your depths. And this is not only quite common for COOs, but it's my entire career as well has just been through saying yes. A question that I often get is, how do you know what to say yes to? Hmm. And I have that question for you. What guides your decision making? Yeah, I, I think if you approach it as what the business needs in order to succeed or in order to continue to push forward, and then is anybody else able to do it or willing to do it or have the amount of sort of passion and buy-in for the business that can push themselves to go achieve it? I, you know, I think usually the answer is yes, most times. There's certainly things that if you prioritize your career over this aspect of learning and progressing the business forward, then you tend to say no more often. And I've just never had that mentality. This is why I love startups because it's the amount that you can learn in a year is like three to five X. It feels if you just went and took a, a singular IC role inside of a large organization. And I've spent you know 20 plus years doing that. And through it, there's a ton of work that has to get done and there's never enough people. There's never enough resources. And if it's a big, meaty, important project, or initiative and you have some level of confidence in yourself and you like to figure things out on the fly and, and push, then it's always a great option to say yes, I think. Yeah, I think it's again, it's like personal career versus like business outcomes. And I always optimize for business outcomes. That's interesting. So it's experience over title. Yeah. Get the experience, always. the title will come eventually. That's how I've always believed. That's what I've always believed. And I know there's with a path to COO and I don't know if there's any sort of magical path, but for me, it's always just been fundamentally saying yes, so that I could develop a broad brush of experience across multiple disciplines and departments, understand what it takes to run certain aspects of the business. And you get that by saying yes to cross-functional projects. You get that to say yes by standing up new departments, going from zero to one, interviewing a bunch of people, hiring really great people, learning from them and putting your ego in check and making sure that they're successful. And I've done that my entire career. And I just love that aspect of learning and, and trying new things like this podcast, for example, is outside my comfort zone, as I mentioned, but I said, yes. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for saying yes. Mm -hmm. Have you ever said no? I'm sure I have, but I yeah. tend not to remember those ones because they're few and far between. And for me to say no, it's usually probably one or two camps. One, I actually think there's somebody better to do it. And so I'll recommend someone. And if it's an up and comer and I've just seen them operate and I have a lot of faith in them and I want them to stretch and push, I'll actually default and say, let's give this person a chance to spearhead and drive this initiative. And that certainly happens more and more as you get later in your career. You try to, whatever it is, pay it forward or get other folks to experience that career journey. And then there's other ones like certainly in startup land, first time founders, the ability to make 
quality decisions based on experience is all over the map. And so sometimes I say no, because I don't think it's the right business decision. And that's less around like taking an opportunity that we think is all aligned is going to drive business outcomes. It's more around, I just fundamentally disagree with the strategy and that's pushing back and having that dialogue before we just knee jerk and do what the CEO wants to do. We have a similar background in that we've both spent time in early stage companies. One of the challenges that you get that's great, as you mentioned, is the ability to just dive into all sorts of different things that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily get the opportunity to do. A pitfall, though, especially as you're early in your career, and I know I experienced this at, at certain points, is that in going to those early stage companies, I didn't necessarily have someone I could learn from in doing that thing. It's very, it was trial by fire, right? And I learned from doing it the hard way. Did you have that similar experience? Because that's also when you're early in your career, learning from someone is so valuable. It, it really is. And I think this is for sure one of the challenges, not having a mentor or an expert in the company that can help you guide yourself through it, find the pitfalls, not walk over the cliff. But sometimes you need to walk over the cliff. So I, I'd say there's learnings in that as well, as long as the sort of whole analogy of one-way doors and two-way doors. There's a lot of two-way doors in organizations. There's like 90%. So you make a mistake, you walk back. And so making sure it's not a company-ending project that you're going to fumble, I think is important. But I'd also say like over the last, I think, 10 years, it feels like the access to mentors, the willingness for people to jump in, quick linking, they're willing to share some of their expertise. There's so much content being produced out there right now, blogs from seasoned VCs and operators that allow you to do a, a level of homework and really understand because there's this academic aspect of it, not just blindly charging up the hill. And I think if you balance that and you can get a solid mentor or a group that you can bounce ideas off of, you can alleviate some of those chances of going over the cliff blindly. That's so funny that you said that. I've been reading Matt Blumberg's blog for 20 years and there's so much good content there. And I'll link to this in the show notes. Matt Blumberg, CEO and founder of Return Path which was a, a Union Square Ventures company. Fred Wilson has called him one of the best CEOs out there. And he's written prolifically a ton of books. There's on my bookshelf, Startup CXO, which is one of his. But nonetheless, like you said, I read this guy's blog for so long. And then after 20 years, this is a couple of months ago, I actually just reached out to him. <laughs> and I said, like, I long, you know, long time listener, first time caller type of thing. And so generous with his time. And like you said, there are people who are really willing to give you that opportunity, give you that time to, to ask some questions. But you mentioned that now more than ever, or rather over the last 10 years, that's picked up speed. Why, why do you think just out of curiosity and we can hypothesize here? I don't have a sort of grand hypothesis on it. I just, I think startups have gone through amazing ebbs and flows over the last decade and a half. Certainly when I came out of college, it was dot-com bust and we lived through the 2008 macro recession and went through my own experiences with layoffs and rifts and downsizing and IPOs and acquisitions. And so even myself doing this podcast is a bit of content that I'm now sharing a journey. And I think there's more folks that cut their teeth over the last 10, 15 years that are now sharing their learnings. And it's wonderful. I think it's great. I also say that there's there's always luminaries and there's always books that exist. The hard thing about hard things with Horowitz and even Frank Slootman's Amp It Up, like just the operating style and radical candor. There's just, I think, a, a greater willingness to adopt and, and have this aspect of perpetual learning and the learning culture that I think is very present in startups and has been over the last uh, 10 years. And so I think that feeds the content engine and it feeds the mentor engine. And uh, overall, I think it's great. There's nothing better than working with a former operator and having them share their kind of war stories and hearing that you're not alone. You're not going through it for the first time. Let's talk about the first time. You mentioned working with first time founders. That is a challenge. It's painful. It's incredibly rewarding because you get to meet some of those luminaries that you talked about, some real incredible people with genius, but you've kept doing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> glutton for punishment, yes. for sure. What's going yeah. on there? 
Yeah, I, the honest answer is I've always been entrepreneurial. I always wanted to start my own company. I'm just not that creative. <laughs> I've just I've had maybe three great ideas that I thought of that have eventually turned into some someone else had the idea. They turned into great businesses, and that's awesome. But I just never had that idea that kept me awake at night and said, I can't stop thinking about this. So my way of living that dream is by partnering with people who have a great vision, who are on a path to, to realize their vision, and I want to help them. And it's, uh, it is painful. It's f- physically, emotionally, mentally painful. And I really think there's a spectrum here. If you really buy in and you're all in, which I am, I tend to be either all in or all out. I'm pretty binary in that way. And if I'm all in, then I care a lot about the business. I take a lot on my shoulders. I want to shoulder the burden and do as much as I possibly can because I know how hard that job is. I know how hard the CEO job is and how lonely it is. And the more I do that, then that inherently gives you more responsibility because people can feel that you actually care. And yeah, I just, I love that aspect of, buying all the way into something and going as hard as you can to try to help somebody realize their vision, but then also bring everybody else in the company along for the ride because I think it creates amazing opportunities. And even with first-time founders, there's always something to learn, right? Absolutely. Oh my God. Every founder that I've worked with, I've learned something. I've worked with incredibly product-oriented engineering background founders who think and solve a problem in a very different way than I would. I've worked with very operational data intensive founders. I've worked with ones that are just, there's the Aaron Levy of the world, the sort of Nick Meta cohort that came out of that are incredibly expressive, uh, very creative, very inspiring and almost accidentally in how they operate. And so everyone, every person is obviously different. They have their strengths and weaknesses, but you can constantly learn and develop from working with these folks. You've worked with quite a variety that you just identified, which have you found you most gravitate to? Which type of founder do you love working with from, say, a complementary perspective? Yeah, I've never owned product or engineering. You know, I have worked with them extensively when trying to accomplish goals, but I tend to enjoy working with product uh, and technical founders. I think my, my strength is in helping scale up the other aspects of the business finding go-to-market leaders as well as like finance and people ops and figuring out how to operationalize the cadence of the business. And those are things that usually are not core competencies of, of those types of founders and something that they appreciate and fits into a natural slot. That said, I've worked when I was doing some level of consulting for about two and a half years, I worked with second time so who tended to be more go-to-market oriented, but there's still a lot which you can augment and support them on. But yeah, I, if I were to have to choose, I love the product. I love the engineering focused founders. Who obsess over what they're building, right? Just absolute obsession, which you have to have in a founder in order to be successful. Let me ask you, it's interesting. We'll see companies launch that essentially do the exact same thing. The launch at the same time, one of them will fail. One of them doesn't. How does that happen? What, what are the conditions between the failure and the success. And I ask this because you've been on the success side. Oh, yeah, you're in the valley long enough, you've seen the failure side too, but that's also obviously learnings. Yeah, I don't know that there's a, there's no silver bullet with anything, right? It's the combination of a bunch of lead bullets. And I don't think you can discount the amount of passion and vision that is required from a founder. Do they have, not only did they build something because they thought it was interesting and cool, but they can actually see where it's headed and they bring people along for the journey. And then if that is well-defined and constantly reiterated with the team, then the decisions behind that wake, if you will, are much easier and you start to stack them up. We, If you want to, like with Product Board as an example, I think the vision really is to be almost the sales force for engineering product design. Like it starts with workflow management, And then through workflow management, you start to capture a ton of data and that data becomes valuable in and of itself, just like when you run Salesforce reports. And and if you have that strong vision, then the decisions that you need to make and where you're headed as a business start to slot behind it and you get greater execution. I think if you don't have the vision and you just start with a product that's feature functionality and solving a basic problem and you're not heading and driving the, the team in the direction from the perspective of sort of 12, 24 months. It's really easy to get sidetracked. It's really easy to uh, lose focus. It's easy to chase the shiny object. And when you're in a startup, you have some only so many resources and you really need them uh, all pulling in the same direction. So, yeah, I, I'll 
give shout out to Slootman's Amp It Up book. It's really focus and execution is the big piece that uh, is mapped behind a really strong vision. And I think that is the difference. But also, if you've ever played poker, some element is luck. Let's not ignore that. There's always luck that, what is it on how I built this guy Raz will ask at the end, you know, how much of it was skill, how much of it was luck, right? Anyone who says it's all skill, come on. Yeah, I mean, you know, like like Box, I think was a good example. Aaron was maniacal, had a vision, constantly pushing, selling the dream, and we would scaffold up a ton of resources behind that to go execute on it. But the iPad dropped in the middle of that journey, and he ran through the organization screaming, we're going to be the first business app on the iPad. And so you have these like market dynamics that sometimes shift in your favor or sometimes against you, and how you react is incredibly important. And I think some of that has to come from the founders and the CEOs, but also the nimbleness of the organization in order to ingest it and actually make it real. Let's talk about that part of ingesting change, especially with startups. And I know a lot of startups right now are having a holy crap moment with generative AI. And it's forcing a lot of people to look at their business model and go, okay, how do we have to pivot in order to stay alive at this point? What's your approach to managing through that change and keeping your team focused and motivated? Yeah, I think there's two sides, right? There's the product side and then there's the operational side. I think the operational side, it's incredibly exciting being able to leverage what the sort of promise of AI across all of the organizations on how we can operate more efficiently and effectively. On the product side, I do think AI is a product problem now. It's not like an engineering problem because it's a product that has to figure out how and where to insert AI into the existing flow or how to reimagine existing feature functionality by putting either AI at the front or on the side. And so for a company like Product Board, we, I think we ran a survey where everybody is effectively at 70 or 80% are trying to figure out their AI strategy in their own product. And it's going at the you know, speed of light, which you'd expect. And it's overall, I think, really exciting. We've gone through monumental shifts uh, as well. This one feels like another one. And the people who can adapt and see the new use cases and reimagine their own product and, and the functionality in a world where manual processes go away, data insights are automatically generated. You don't have to have spend three hours crafting content anymore. That just, I think, frees people up to go and be creative. And in order to adapt, again, that's the nimbleness of the organization. If you're the, the competitive advantage of a startup is that you can move fast. You have less people. You can reorient OKRs and goals in a month's time, in a week's time, maybe. And you can deprioritize things and reprioritize things. That type of work takes weeks, months, years in larger organizations. And so it's that speed. I think that is the competitive advantage for startups. As a leader, how do you, let's say, buffer your team from some of the whiplash that can come with that? One is just that expectation up front. I think you can't ignore it. And you have to say it and you have to source for it in your interview process. Like this is a dynamic place. Everyone says dynamic, fast moving. Like that's what everybody talks about. But the reality is you need to give some level of stability to actually get things out the door and learn from them. And then others, you have to realize that your reporting cadence and your goal setting cadence, it needs to be faster. And so goals will change. Resources will move. And so one is just like building a culture around that and making sure people understand it. And then protecting initiatives that are longer term that you fundamentally believe need to be true and you kind of ring fence them, you, you protect those teams, you give them a charter that's a little bit longer. And then other parts, you just know that you're on sprints. You're on a, we're going to take you off this, this one sprint with this one experiment and we're going to go in this other direction and we're going to see which one actually materializes better results. So I, I, there's no, I think the, the easy answer is there's long-term initiatives that are going to be true because they're attached to your vision and you need to invest because they take a long time to materialize. And then there's everything else that is you're trying and experimenting and figuring it out and launching new campaigns and you're doing new product releases. And so you should be able to insert into that nimbleness of most of the organization. In there, you mentioned how the operations have changed, right? The need to generate content and you have a go-to-market focus. You are a largely commercial focused COO at this point in your career. How has generative AI and just large language models gone about and impacted? How, how are you all applying it to be more nimble and 
I can't think of the word right now, but you get what I'm saying. Leverage the power. <laughs> yeah, ride the lightning. Yeah, yeah there you yeah. go. Yeah, so my career has gone through multiple iterations. So I've been like the more CFO, operational, HR, kind of finance, COO. I've also been like the interim kind of take over all the go-to-market and align the teams. So I've seen a wide spectrum of it. I would say for us, we're constantly experimenting with, with generative AI. There's a couple of very obvious use cases. There's the content piece, there's product marketing, there's summaries and, and note building and design elements that you can get really creative with. We're using it in sales outreach. You can do an amazing amount of research on a prospect to start to build bespoke outreach sequences. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a healthy amount of experimentation. For our own product, there's a lot of, of applications that we can do. We effectively have these kind of three modules. You have the insights platform, prioritization, and road mapping. And if you think about the insights bucket, we're doing integrations with all these com- companies. We're pulling in all of this customer research. Like it's a very obvious place for us to apply AI to where product managers go to research. And if we can automatically highlight some themes by segment, biggest customer, smallest customers, customers in certain regions, customers in certain industries, like that's incredibly valuable and time-saving for product teams. So I think from our product perspective, there's a lot going on and we can probably apply it on multiple places. And then in our go-to-market machine, it's certainly around outreach, content creation, product marketing, summaries, and even design. Everything is being experimented with right now. Now, the product piece is really interesting because you have proprietary data, but that data is proprietary, right? It is customer data. You can't very well go and drop it into chat GPT. How are you all thinking about that? in terms of leveraging, being able to leverage that data. And I know we're getting way down the pipe in, in product, but just something I'm keenly interested in. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is going to be a great topic for a long time of how do you get people to opt in to beta programs around AI that are using outsourced language models and something that we're all grappling with, with like everybody else. Uh, and so I think there is one, you can't do anything unless your customers know what you're doing and they proactively buy into it and absorb the risk. And I think that's going to be the reality for quite some time is that companies absorb the risk because they want to try this beta filter. Or you can apply it to things that are not effectively touching customer data as a first crack. I don't know that there's an easy answer right now unless you're developing your own language models that are closed. So I think we're we're, we're figuring it out and navigating it like everybody else. But I cer- certainly... The biggest pieces is communication with customers, acknowledgement of it, just like you would in your normal sort of T's and C's, but making sure that it's understood and the risks applied to it. We'll be right back. Okay, does this sound familiar? You wake up, take a look at your calendar, and see it's filled with meetings. Project meetings, stand-ups, weekly check-ins, one-on-ones, town halls, and those are just the internal ones. Some are productive, but some are total waste of time and treasure. Be honest with yourself. How many times have you thought this meeting could have totally been an email? I bet a bunch. Now, consider that in the US, there are 55 million meetings happening each day, and 85 to 90% have no agenda. Fellow is on a mission to solve the meeting problem by offering the only meeting management tool that covers every part of your meeting workflow. By offering 500 meeting templates, integrated action items, collaborative meeting notes, and AI recording and transcription, Fellow helps teams and organizations get more done with less. Between two COOs listeners, yes you, get five free AI meeting recordings. Go to fellow.co to start your free trial and start having better meetings today. So I'm interested because, as I mentioned, I've used Product Board before, really loved it. My current company doesn't use it at the moment. How do you see ops folks being able to use Product Board? And I'm not trying to like give you all a promo. This is a product management tool, right? That management piece, having better operational efficiency. How do you think that operational folks, whether they're GTM, or whether they're GNA focused, can use it. Yeah, I think maybe two veins. I'll, I'll talk about just so the evolution of like ops people in general that are, are oriented around go to market. So, so you you think about CRM solutions and the creation of real sort of sales ops. You think about like Marketo and HubSpot and Eloqua and the sort of the orientation around marketing ops. And now you've got Gainsight and Vitaly and all these other companies uh, that are coming around for CS ops. The same will be true with product and product operations. So there is a there is a growing movement around product ops. 
companies that are orientated individuals that manage the system of record, but are also driving the insights um, through it and are effectively like running the process of product management. Uh, and we've seen that. And then we've seen it in large organizations and small organizations that make that investment. So I think there's that piece of the ops that is following the natural curve of some of these other organizations. And then how other operational teams can leverage it. If you do product well, it's a very inclusive and collaborative process. You're gathering information from a bunch of different stakeholders and you're organizing it in such a way that allows you to prioritize the right things for the right business outcome. And so that's one piece of which there's a lot of collaboration between sales and CS and, and marketing. The second piece is every CFO right now is trying to figure out the effectiveness of their engineering org, right? Like we, we hired a bunch of engineers, we have a bunch of product people, like what is the value, what is the ROI of this team? And it's never been as indexed as the go-to-market team. Salespeople have a quota and you have a quota ratio of four to five X OTE. Marketing has ROI calculators and all their pipelines. CS has portfolio management of the book of business and the NRR associated with it. Engineering roughly and product roughly haven't had that level of scrutiny. And I think that's changing. And I think it's changing in a good way because you want to understand your inputs and outputs, your throughput and the effectiveness of it. And and so I think this is another tie in where your your finance and your ops team will eventually start to play a bigger role in how effective is your product org. Setting aside product board, that can be a scary specter for folks. And it reminds me of when Salesforce first came around and sales folks looked at this as big brother monitoring. Lo and behold, it becomes an indispensable product or rather tool for sales. There are companies like Linear DB, which help engineers measure estimation accuracy and code that's pushed, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of friction to that adoption. So I'm just curious, how do you see that playing out? And this may be out of your wheelhouse saying, like, well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, I can I can uh, uh, conceptualize things pretty easily. So I, I have ideas. It certainly still needs to be developed. Like an, an individual AE is not going to adopt Salesforce. Maybe there's value on organizing all their opportunities, but they could probably do it in Excel or do something else if they feel like they would be effective. It's an organizational push because it leads to predictability, it leads to accountability, and it leads to organizations making better decisions. You know, if you don't know what your pipeline coverage is and you don't know what your forecast is and you, you don't know where you're going to end up, how do you make decisions on where to invest and not? And if you don't know the effectiveness of your engineering product design team, like how do you know you can actually hit milestones? How do you know you can respond to customer needs? Are you building the right things that are associated with the company objectives or not? And you're going to have leaky funnels in engineering and product and design, just like you have in sales and marketing. And I think it's less about fear mongering and control. It's more about like, how do we plug those? How do we get better as an organization and, cons and consistently iterate so that we can improve our, our performance across the business? And I think that's what Salesforce has done. And I think in a lot of ways, the sort of gain sites and HubSpots and Marketos have done that. Uh, they've given visibility to a flow uh, that has been a little bit backroom or cobbled together. And giving visibility allows you to have data and data allows you to make good decisions. So that, that's how I view it. And I think that's the evolution it will go through. It's hard to argue with data. Yeah. You can, but it's hard. <laughs> Let's talk about prioritization, which you've touched on a number of times. You as a COO, you as an executive at Product Board, how do you go about prioritization? What is your approach and how do you guide your team the right way without being too overbearing? Yeah. I, again, I think you have to have a vision. So you, you have a vision for the product, which is great, but you also have to have a vision for the business. You can simplify it in. We started as an SMB commercial business and we want to be an enterprise company. What has to be true in order for that to materialize? And that will span across an, every segment. Where's your enterprise readiness roadmap on your product? What does it mean for your DNA of your sales team, your marketing programs, the messaging, positioning, et cetera? And so you can create a vision that we want to head in that direction. You can set goaling around mix shift of your ARR. And then you actually have to put the, the pieces on the board of who's going to do what and how do we evolve over time. So I think if you pick that point, and that's just one example, some companies that are like expand into different geos or launch new product lines. 
there's a thing. There's always a thing that the company is headed towards and you can orient your teams around it. And then there's millions of different opportunities to celebrate small wins and accomplishments along the way. And so I think it's the direction and the vision. And then there's the level of checking in without being overbearing. And targets make it really easy for for people to feel like they're on track or off. And me personally, I tend not to be overbearing. I like to hire really solid people who are self-starters. And they're constantly looking maybe for calibration or feedback, but not direction. Because they understand where we're headed and they're pushing in that direction. And uh, yeah, I'm just not, never have been micromanager. I like to hire people that are, that go after it. Now, what's your approach to giving that feedback and helping that calibration? Again, without seeming like you're telling them what to do. It's an art. And I'm, uh, this is something I'm keenly interested in. I really do think it's about asking questions, giving people enough direction. And then calibration is asking questions. Have they thought of this? What about this option? How are you thinking about this eventuality? How will you know if this is, is successful? What are you judging your success on? Because there's, there tends to be a lot of outputs, call it you know, assets or events, but what's the actual outcomes that you're driving to? What are the numbers that you want to see over what period of time? And the more that you do that with individuals, the less you have to do it because they internalize it. And then when they come up with, a, with an experiment, it has numbers now has numbers based on baselines, has numbers based on past performance. And now you're just, you're being a sounding board on the tactics and the ways to approach it. Let's talk about the revenue attainment. As I mentioned, you're nearing on a hundred million. I hope that is not private. Is that private? I'll have to remove this. I have no <laughs> idea if that's private. It's a little generous, but we're, we're on that path. And so maybe we can, we'll take that one. As Regardless, <laughs> your revenue is growing. However, you've moved into enterprise. And the enterprise market has gotten tough. Historically long sales cycles have become even longer. I know personally, I'm scrutinizing every ask, as is my CFO, or we call him a CFNO, which is what a good CFO should be. How have you all experienced that? You've gone through this before. You mentioned 2008, right? And how did you recalibrate to get ready for this? And continue to excel mm -hmm. enterprise is always tough you know, moving up market as a startup you have a lot of startup dna and nimbleness that is valuable at certain stages but then you have to appear like you're stable uh, so it's it's an absolute journey one to just get the organization ready and two to actually empathize with it and three it's just this constant iterative feedback loop of hey, our biggest customers are stress testing our product. We have to scale it, our performance, our permissioning, everything has to evolve. So I think there's this like organizational readiness piece. And then there's the, where does your product actually add value to these companies? And there's always a sliver that tends to adopt first. Uh, so for us, we found very clearly that we started in a startup selling to other startups, and then we started to sell to bigger software companies, which is great. But there's a sliver there of, of companies that building software is not their core competency. You think about retail, you think about healthcare, uh, logistics, financial services, like they're in the business of that. They're not in the business of building software, but they all have to build software now. Retailers have to build e-commerce sites and digital loyalty programs and mobile applications. Healthcare has to build digital patient experiences and, and scheduling applications, all of these things some of which were accelerated through COVID and some have just been long-term trends. And so we, as, a, as an expert in the space, have a lot more to offer than just a system. We have the best practices. We have the learnings from some of the best software businesses on how they do product that we can share with these companies. So the change management value is huge. And then working obviously with external partners. So for us, companies that we put in this bucket of digital transformation or product as a you know, software being their sort of secondary or, or even their third business model, like those for us, we find a lot of adoption and a lot of success. And so it's funny, like when things get hard, you find the ones that are working, you find the silver pieces and you go hard at it and you try to operationalize everything else. And if you get really good at it, when the rest of the business comes back, you're back into kind of hyper growth mode. And I think that's what a lot of startups are trying to figure out. What's the silver lining? What is working? What's not? How do I get more efficient on the things that are not working? And how do I double down on the signal that is still there? And that's going to be true for the next four to six quarters at least, right? So from an operational perspective, particularly when it comes to sales operations and on the commercial side, 
what's the advice that you tend to give to those companies that want to jump from the SMB to the enterprise space? Yeah, we what we did at Product Board, and this we've been on this journey for three plus years. We made ourselves give ourselves a sort of uh, scorecard, right? An enterprise readiness scorecard, and I decentralized it, and we had every department evaluate it. We've all worked in different sized companies. You know how your business operates and your department operates. Give yourself a ranking, like what are the categories, and then what's your score. And then we've leveraged that scorecard over the last two plus years to progressively make improvements upon it. And it wasn't a tops down initiative of like, I think engineering, you need to do X, Y, and Z. It was engineers and products saying, I think we need to do this level of re-architecture to, to increase our scalability. And so you had a level of ownership at the department level and the individual level, which I think was incredibly important. And, you know, startups are filled with people with experience as well. They've got com- companies they've worked with, ones that have sold to enterprise and some that are not. And I think you can leverage that experience to, to crowdsource. And then you as a management team, make sure that you're focusing on the right pieces in the right order. And I guarantee you, like moving up market is a total team sport. It's a 100% a company level initiative. And there's other companies that just never made that transition or, or have always fought against it because of the core DNA and because of the founders. And so you really have to understand is their willingness and a belief that this is where you're headed. Because uh, if you don't have that, then you're just pushing a boulder uphill. One of the things that we've talked about here several times now is feedback. Feedback from your customers to the rest of the organization, whether that be product, whether that be engineering, what have you. How have you gone about establishing that? What are some best practices that you've had? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we one the product board is just designed with a module around feedback, right? It's capturing your support tickets, your sales opportunity notes, uh, internal uh, notes that exist, gong recordings, et cetera. And so it is this repository of just collecting it and making sure that you're thematically categorizing it, which again, this is an application for AI for sure, and then sharing those learnings and they actually get prioritized. But then you also have to speak to customers, right? You have to have those hinge points in an organization. Every company has these natural friction, they're all joints, right? Sales and marketing is a friction point and sales and CS is a friction point and CS and product is a friction point. I think there's good friction and bad friction. The good friction is actually pushing each other uh, to have empathy for each other's roles and to understand the viewpoint. And so that is always something that we are constantly trying to improve upon in, in a product or outside of the product just by process. And it just, it requires intentionality. Having your CS team and you know that you're moving up market, you orient what we call a pod zero model, which is like CS and sales and product and services oriented around our biggest customers. Knowing that model will help us glean the greatest insights and allow us to make faster improvements on our enterprise readiness that we've been tracking on our scorecard. And I think that buy-in, like being involved in those process, hearing directly from customers where they're struggling, where they're succeeding, feedback on new features and functionality is just so critical. And then the same thing with sales, multiple, whether you love or hate Slack, it's valuable, multiple channels around upmarket deal feedback. And you're capturing where, what feature functionality we need, what we're missing, what's blocking deals or what has really helped deals get done. And you just have to have that flywheel running at all times. Yeah. Back up pod zero model. Tell us about this. What is this? Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of a made up name, but it was, you know, if you're a company that has pr- traditionally served SMBs or mid market, and now you're closed your first one, two, three, four, five enterprise companies, they're very different. They require a different delivery model or a different time scale with a different statement of work. And if you just do what you've normally done with those organizations, it's just not going to work and you're going to get surprised at renewals. So we just more intentionally added a sort of dedicated services person, a strat CSM. Uh, product uh, sort of sponsor and the AE onto an account, just a pod model where they're all collectively working to make sure that customer is successful on the platform and then eventually expands and grows and becomes a champion. And for us, if you're moving up market, nothing's better than actually having customer champions that you can use in your marketing flywheel, um, but also who who will you know tap their network and give you a a good shout out. And so making them wildly successful, knowing that you're still a startup and immature requires a level of investment. So we call that pod zero. I love that. Let's talk about 
the feedback that comes in through that mechanism. And again, I'm giving you some layups here. Everyone, I swear, Product Board has not paid me here. It's a really good product, and we've got an experienced guy here to tell us about it. So let's talk about the, let's call them feature requests. There's always a juggle between so-and-so enterprise. This can be, you know, 3 million ARR. We got to do it, but they want X, Y, and Z. How do you go about doing that? Because now you've got AEs pushing for something. Frustration can build. You've got engineering and product, which, yeah, it's nimble, but can you drop everything and add, you know, something new and monstrous? How do you manage that? You know, for me, it's consistency of signal, right? If you're whipsawing back and forth and building things that are completely orthogonal to your vision or what you want your platform to be, you get in trouble. And that's the companies that sell a, a really big enterprise, a $7 million deal. It's nine, nine, 90% of their ARR. And then that company churns off and the company no, no longer exists. The startup dies. Like we have all heard those stories. I know those stories. And that gets you into trouble. And that's by building very specific things for one specific customer that don't apply to a broader industry or use case. And so for us, you have to apply that lens. And again, that's where you get the consistency of signal. Enterprise customers are asking for basic things like granular level permissioning and scalability of performance and exec level reporting. And we hear that, oh, we know more that you hear it in your conversations and at bats, the more you realize that this is, this is it. And yes, like if you're going to go industry specific, are there some industry specific product enhancements you need, or is it really just like a repackaging of your existing functionality? So, so there's a strategy level and a filter that has to be applied. You can't knee jerk and build everything that every enterprise person wants. You have to find the ones that sort of the Venn diagram, the overlap and focus there because the reality of that probably solves 80% of your problems and different products, different industries. I'm sure that's a bit more nuanced, but for us listening to the signal from our existing customers that we close, knowing that we said yes to an account that we know that we're going to have to do some stuff, right? We know that they're going to stretch us as an organization and that's good because you want to go through the learning. If you close an account like that without the acknowledgement that you're going to have to put a lot of work into it, you're in for a world of, world of hurt. And so you got to have collective organizational buy-in. You have to have this enterprise readiness concept and you have to listen. And the more that you hear the same things, it helps you really prioritize the stuff that sits in the middle of the Venn diagram. COO, a lot of the time we're referees and also coaches. When you have that AE coming in, I've got this great thing, but they need Bitcoin integration. How do you manage that? Because they're not going to get it. I'm a true believer in ICP work. Like your ideal customer profile is so critical and it evolves over time. We took a, a more complicated approach. We, we took it from some best practices at other companies. We effectively built a dartboard. And the dartboard is like the bullseye is where we've come from. We know we're really good at selling to these companies. We know what they want and we have it to offer. And yeah, they'll always ask for new integrations and stuff, but it's it fits. And then there's the outer ring where we know it's a stretch. Like we, we know what they want. We may not know holistically, but we're willing to close them and work with them and co-create the product, if you will, with them in order to get more companies that look like them. And then you have like the outer ring where it's like, we're just not going to sell to them. You know, <laughs> like we sell to them and they're going to be unhappy and they're going to turn out. Like, why would you put yourself in that business? And I think that level of focus is important for the organization to know. And those are the types of companies that really get it right on focusing on their ideal customer profile and then expanding that as they mature as a business. So yeah, it's easy to say no to something that's, this is just not, this is not good business. This is great. We'll get a sale and it'll leave us in six months. Yeah. And hopefully you're filtering those out to begin with when you're doing your outbound or even the inbound. Right. And so by the time your AE gets to that point, gets to that sale, they actually don't get to that point because you have a qualified customer at this point. That's all. Yeah, that that you always aim for that level of perfection. Your lead scoring, your firmographic targeting, and certainly in your named accounts, you're not going to have. You have enough understanding that you don't think you're going to get surprised at the end by some weird feature request. But again, like every industry is different. Like in in the BI space, like people are incredibly nuanced in the type of charts that they want and the, the type of UI experience they want. So I feel, and in the BI space, the feature request list is long and it's real because people are incredibly particular in what they want to see. So I'm very empathetic that different industries and products have different requirements. 
I am one of those <laughs> customers. Yeah, I have no sure. empathy though. Yeah, for you guys, for for uh-huh. the for the no, I kid, of course. Let's talk about empathy. Yeah. You mentioned the importance of having empathy within different roles. What does that mean? Yeah, I think it just it's really the acknowledgement that everybody's job is hard. It's just hard in different ways. And I think if you can approach it that way, then I think you can reach a level of understanding and appreciation. Sales is very hard, but it's also like very rewarding. It's hard to hear no a bunch of times. And then it's very rewarding to close a big deal and have everybody celebrate you. CS is incredibly hard in its own way of having tough customer conversations consistently, which feels like a sales rejection almost. But then you celebrate the wins and when you've actually delivered a ton of value to a customer. So Every, everything is like that engineering, product design, they're all oriented and they're all hard in their own way. And I think if you have empathy for that and you strive to have a better understanding of how they operate and how they're gold and what they care about, then it goes a long way and you can make a lot of progress cross departmentally. So I have empathy for engineers because I myself tried to become one, which was so misguided. But I did learn some PHP and JavaScript, and then I realized, wow, my brain does not work this way. And this, if I continue down this path, is absolute folly. I got my hands dirty. I got a really great appreciation from that. But if we have AEs going off and, hey, let me learn JavaScript, that's not a a path you want to go. So how do you create that empathy? Or rather, how do you connect the teams to develop that empathy? Totally. So one of the things that we're doing actually this month, later this month, is we're ha- we have hackathons like most companies do. Hackathons tend to be traditionally like engineering led and maybe product comes along and, and you have these little pods and they go off and ideate and, and do something. What we're doing is we're actually like every pod for the ha- hackathon is required to have a go to market participant. And, and so now you're having this ideation phase where you have a CS leader or you have a product marketing or maybe somebody on community or, or sales person. And you're building empathy not only for the customers, but also the process of what it actually takes to build product. And I think it's just seeing people do their work. And there's really no, there's no easy answer. You, you can, I've been at companies where everyone starts in support. Everyone's answering support tickets. Everybody's responding to customer needs and it builds a ton of empathy. Like you have to walk in their shoes. And yeah, we don't want salespeople going and trying to crack together code. But if they work on a cross-functional engineering team during a hackathon, they'll understand it a lot better and they'll have a, they'll have more empathy coming out of it. And the opposite will be true too, because the salesperson will be representing what's preventing them from being successful and how hard it is to navigate through a sales cycle that takes three, six, nine months sometimes. I love that. That's fantastic. That's what we did at, uh, at automatic, both the hackathons, but also every new person who joined, regardless of if it was finance or an engineer, they all did three weeks of customer support. And not only did you learn the product because you're helping people and you get to interact with your customers, so valuable, but support is a really hard job and you develop that appreciation for it. And then I love through the hackathon as well, just having that sort of cross-pollination and that exposure. Time for my favorite question. (laughs) We've all had those moments where as a, a COO, or just anyone in a leadership capacity, something has come up and you have just been like, I cannot believe that this is part of my life right now. I cannot believe that this is happening. And I never thought I'd see that. Do you have one you can share with us? Uh, I tend to be a bit unflappable and, and it's not, not easy to surprise me, but uh, just having lived and worked in startup land. But there, there, is, a, there is a situation that sort of came to mind. Um, there was a company that I worked with a while back uh, and it was trying to build a business model to confluence of creating food, doing delivery logistics, and also technology. And so you can imagine like the harmony of cultures that is required in order to make that work. And we had an interview panel where we were trying to bring on another executive. And we had the ranking system like everybody does, right? One, two, three, four. And one was, no, I will 
fight you if you try to hire this person. Two is like, nah, like no, but I can be convinced. Three was yes, I can be convinced otherwise. And four was like, I'll fight you. We must hire this person. Um, and so seeing like if you can imagine like kind of Gordon Ramsay and Elon Musk in a room like fighting over a candidate, it was a very it was pretty surreal. And it was that type of experience of the the kit the kitchen mentality and the this is my realm this is my domain like i own this decision and then you have a ceo who's a tech person like what are you talking about this is my company and then you know it like literally inserting myself into that conversation and calming down and having to explain to a you know a michelin rated chef that this is what it means for you to feel like a four like you are fighting for this person because you fundamentally believe that this is true but you're used to making all the decisions and shots in the kitchen and that's just not how this dynamic works so yeah it was yeah it was i don't know referee lifeguard whatever analogy you want to be but uh navigated that through it was like a two and a half hour conversation of just trying to get people with very different experience sets to come to the same plane and actually make a really important decision so that was wild i love that i wish i was there I wish I was a flying on the wall. It's actually, I knew one time that I was walking into a conversation that was going to be like that. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm about to walk into a conversation. People are going to be really nasty to each other. And my mom goes, oh, I wish I was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wish I was just observing too, but I was right in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry and that you had to the, be a referee. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Greg, thanks so much for sharing. And Thanks for coming on. Where where can people go to keep up with you and, and Product Board? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Product Board has uh, a number of different content arms, and I would certainly follow us on LinkedIn. We produce a, a bunch of engaging, uh, you know, sort of meme-worthy content that's always fun, and, and our blog as well. Uh, for me, I'm not a huge content creator, but if you feel like connecting on LinkedIn, we'd, we'd love to do that. And, uh, and yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on here, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you to you all for listening to Between Two COOs and a very special thank you to Greg Strickland for joining us. Tune in next time for our next COO chat on Between Two COOs and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Just visit BetweenTwoCOOs.com for more. And if you have a minute, please, please, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show so they can get great advice from phenomenal COOs. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. And until next time, so long. 